Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Kate Eberly Walker, CEO of Presence Learning, the leading provider of online special education therapy services for K-12 schools. She's also the author of The Good Boss, Nine Ways That Every Manager Can Support Women at Work. Kate has more than 20 years of experience leading education companies. She was the CEO of the Princeton Review, a leading provider of test prep admissions and tutoring services, including online on-demand tutoring under the Tutor.com brand. Founded in 2009, Presence Learning partners with schools to expand their capacity to serve all students with IEPs or behavioral mental health needs. Their large national network of over 1,500 speech-language pathologists, occupational therapists, and school psychologists deliver services through an award-winning proprietary teletherapy platform. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Awesome. So, Kate, I'd love to just start by getting a a sense for how are you doing with, with everything that's going on in the world? How are you and how is your family? We're doing great. I mean, as great as anyone can be doing. We were just talking about how it's been over a year now since any of us have been on an airplane, which is strange to be staying so close to home. But it's been really nice in other ways to get to, you know, have weekday lunches with my daughters when they have a break from school and I have a break from work. So we're finding the silver linings. That's awesome. Yeah. Lunches in the middle of the day with kids is is something that a lot of parents are now coming accustomed to and might even start missing once kids start going back to school. Yeah, it's so, it's so much healthier too. I mean, I'm actually eating lunch, right? I'm actually taking the time to eat lunch. Yeah, no, same, same is true on my end. I definitely am creating, cultivating a lot of good habits because I'm trying to model them for my kids. So mm-hmm. as a result, you know, you have such an amazing background in education. Obviously, it's an interesting time with education right now. I'd love to know your background, like what what got you started, especially your interest in online special education therapy and presence learning. Yeah, so I, I've always had an interest in, you know, call it the intersection of technology and education. And to me, the most valuable thing we can do as companies in this area is figure out how to use tech to bring the right experts closer to the students, to the kids who need them. And so, you know, that was a big part of what I did when I was running tutor.com. The whole idea was kids need help from subject matter experts. And so let's build something that makes those experts accessible and affordable just at the right moment when kids need them. And so with that, when I got to know Presence Learning and what they were doing, it was, you know, to me, the ultimate business to get the opportunity to run because they were doing exactly that. They had built a tech platform that was bringing the specialists, the special education clinicians closer to the students and giving a lot of kids access to the experts that they, you know, weren't otherwise getting coming into their schools. And, uh, you know, it was doing it in the area of education that, you know, I think needs it the most. These are the kids in the public education system who have learning disabilities, have special needs and they need the support. So for those that don't know Presence Learning, what is that teletherapy? What does that look like? And, and what was happening before Presence Learning came on, came on the scene? Like what, what, what standard and, and what, what does Presence Learning do differently? 
probably the the first thing that's helpful to know about how special education works in schools is that there's there's actually a federal law, the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act, that requires all public schools to provide support to students with learning disabilities. And there are over 7 million kids across the U.S. public education system who have a disability and have required services that are delivered through their public schools. A lot of that is speech therapy, speech language pathology, or occupational therapy, or other types of counseling. And despite the fact that schools have have teams to do this work and they have that federal mandate to do it, before teletherapy came along, a lot of those services were just going unmet mostly because of a hiring need and, you know, a capacity gap, so to speak. So there are only so many of these professionals. They're highly skilled and, you know, only a subset of them do work in schools. And so schools would try their best to recruit, to hire. And in some cases, you know, they'd have shortages on their staff and that would trickle down to the kids who, you know, wouldn't then get their therapy sessions or wouldn't get, you know, the full requirement delivered. And so teletherapy really came to be an education in that context of saying, you know, well, we can help connect those therapists to the kids. And it started out in the very rural, you know, remote parts of the country where you had these very large districts by, you know, by square mileage geographic measure, and they weren't able to get the talent in their areas and hire them and have them physically come to the schools. So they became sort of the first innovators who, you know, bought into this idea of, you know, well, what of the work can we do online? And, you know, what, what could allow us to make use of a part of the workforce that lives elsewhere, but wants to do the work. And so I'm just thinking through the lens of a a teacher, is there a challenge? Like, let's say I have a classroom full of, I don't know, 20 students, and let's say two of those students are on an IEP. Do they have those students sit in front of a computer and then interact with the teletherapist? Is that is that what's happening? And then the other 18 kids continue with their curriculum? Or I'm just curious about the logistics of how that is. And the, the reason I ask is that I have a four-year-old and getting him to spend time in front of a computer has been mm-hmm. like a Herculean challenge for me. And so right, I'm just right. curious, like logistically, how does that work in, in a classroom setting? It requires another adult. So typically what happens if, if it's happening inside the school is there will be a learning coach or, you know, so someone will come and get the child and bring them to another quieter space to sit in front of the computer. And they'll, they'll you know, they'll stay in the room so they won't be directly involved in delivering the teletherapy, but they will be the, you know, the supervision on the scene, so to speak, to make sure that that it happens. And these days, that person, that learning coach is very often the parent. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So essentially, the parent also is learning from the teletherapist as well, right? Like presumably. It's a really nice side benefit or incremental benefit to this is parents getting to watch what happens and yeah, and and learn it. I mean, it helps them know what to do with their children. One of my daughters gets online speech therapy and I love watching and learning and, and seeing what really happens. And this has implications. I mean, you mentioned rural. I'm also thinking of the fact that these challenges exist beyond American borders. Do you all have a presence outside of the U.S. or or what is that international piece like if that's part of kind of your, your scope of work? I wish we had more of an international presence. We do get requests. We get inquiries. 
The short short answer to why not is really regulatory restrictions. So the way these, these types of work goes, each professional has to be licensed in the state where she lives and then also in the location where the student lives. And so, you know, that leads to, just for the U.S. alone, that leads to an incredible amount of you know, cross-licensing logistics and coordination to help therapists get the, you know, get the additional state recognition beyond their own state. And we just haven't gotten there to, you know, going cross-border with that and, and figuring out what each country's local license is. But we get a lot of requests for it. And I think there's something important to be done there too. In my field, I'm a pediatrician. They had similar rules. Like, you know, if I wanted to practice and see a child, I'd have to be in the same state. Telemedicine has relaxed a lot of the rules with COVID. And I'm curious whether there's a similar relaxation. Maybe it hasn't happened yet, but do you foresee that happening where maybe one day a therapist in Florida can treat a patient in New Hampshire? Like, would that sort of thing be possible down the road, do you think? I think it will be. I mean, I certainly think it should be. And what has happened, we, we haven't seen those waivers or those cross-state acknowledgements come through yet in COVID. But what we are seeing is, you know, finally seeing some more action on some of the proposed interstate compacts where a number of states are coming together and you know, mutually acknowledging each other's licenses. And so to me, that that tells me that, you know, there's there's more momentum here. And, you know, the goal, of course, is to get to full compact across all the states. Is your sense that this will continue to be, you know, what's called the new normal after folks have gotten vaccinated for COVID and maybe that is not the same sort of level of threat that it is today and folks start going back to school? Do you still sense that there will still be this need for teletherapy at the same level that you're seeing today? Short answer, yes. I, there's a couple of things that I think have have changed for, for good and won't go back to the way they were. One is just an acceptance of teletherapy. You know, there, there used to be so much more of a skepticism or disbelief that it could really work. And we've moved past that more quickly than anyone would have expected because everyone had to try it. And so many more people have seen for themselves that it can be done, that a lot more can be done through teletherapy than people would have thought prior to this. And so, you know, we, we talked about teletherapy exists that emerged to cover gaps. There are a lot of gaps right now. There are more gaps than, than ever before in what services students should be receiving and what they are receiving. They're always there because what caused all this in the first place, the capacity constraints, the hiring constraints, the, those are still there. The gaps are getting bigger because we have more and more children coming into the education system, getting diagnosed with needs. You know, we're over 7 million IEPs and counting, and you still have a very limited professional, you know, group to get the work done. So I think, you know, now that people have, you know, kind of seen it and believe it that you can do teletherapy, I think it'll just be used to fill a lot more of those gaps that were already there. The other thing, maybe even a bigger dynamic that I think has changed for good is the awareness of the benefits of remote work and maybe a growing preference for it from the workforce. And that determines everything, right? If this is how clinicians want to work, how they're going to choose to work, then, you know, I think more interactions with students will, will need to happen this way. It's a really good point. And, and I'm just thinking of like, the demand seems so clear the way you laid it out. Like so many students have a need, so many teachers are not equipped to handle that need. And then there's the supply side, the supply of expertise. 
are you having a hard time keeping up with that demand? Like, is there enough, is there enough supply of expertise out there, especially given all the other stuff that, that folks are kind of getting pulled into, like experts are doing mental health counseling and, you know, other types of work that you're able to keep up with the amount of demand that you're seeing? It is hard to keep up with the demand. I mean, it's the, it's the, biggest restriction on us growing as fast as we want to grow and, and, and doing as much as we want to is getting the right professionals and recruiting them. I think what, what we aspire to do is really expand the workforce of who is, you know, qualified and available and interested in doing the work with kids in schools. I think we already do that in one way, which is that it used to be that, you know, you might, as a, as a speech language pathologist, you might go work in a school early in your career and spend a few years there. But those are, you know, those are really high stress jobs and they involve a lot of driving around from site to site, very heavy caseloads. And so, you know, what used to happen before teletherapy as a career path was an option was they would opt out often after having children and deciding that they wanted a bit more control over their schedules. This is a probably should have mentioned this is a very high concentration of women in these professions. So speech language pathologists are over 95% women. And we, we recruit them to basically stay and keep on doing the work with kids in schools and say, you know, you don't have to leave and go to private practice. You don't have to leave and go work in a clinic working with adults. You can keep on engaging with these kids who you want to help and you don't have to do it in that, you know, traditional full-time on-site structure. And so that, that's how we grew and, and recruited and have gotten to over 1,500 clinicians who've chosen to do it that way. And I think that really does expand at least thinking about, you know, who, who is available to do this for kids in schools. I think we've really helped expand the workforce. But the other really important work to do is at the start in the degree programs and generating more awareness of these professions. I think these are really attractive jobs. I mean, they, they pay well and they're really rewarding. And, you know, my hope is to get more engaged. We are getting more engaged with the graduate programs and even undergraduate programs to broaden the awareness. There's so many parts of your professional story that are so interesting to me. One part that we haven't talked about is your book. So you wrote a book, as I understand it, The Good Boss, Nine Ways That Every Manager Can Support Women. And you just talked about the fact that a lot of your workforce is women. And you talked about acquisition. I'm curious about retention. Like, how do you, and maybe there are pieces of your book that you can allude to, but like, how do you keep specifically women in the workplace that are on your team motivated, excited about their professional growth? Yeah, I mean, I, yes, I have so many thoughts about this that I did write a book about it. And, you know, the overall premise of the book is, is really putting the responsibility on managers and companies to really understand the experience of women in the workplace. You know, in, in my own experience, the workplaces that I've been in were not really, you know, built by women or designed for women and particularly not for working moms. And so, you know, what I do in my writing and do a lot in, you know, my communications with, with our workforce and our recruiters and thinking about retention is I acknowledge the, you know, the experience of working moms, the need for predictability and schedules, control over, you know, not necessarily the overall workload, but which hours of the day they're committing to, the ability to, you know, let, let life come into the traditional workday a little more. And, you know, I think there are so many women out there who are 
very happy to get back on their computer and, you know, do a little work at later at night, early in the morning. It's, you know, a lot of it is, is really acknowledging and trusting that, you know, the, these women want to work, they're going to get the work done, but, you know, they need some flexibility and, and some predictability in how it's all happening. And this year has, you know, made that more critical than ever. We've had a lot of situations where women in our, in our clinical network had to take temporary leaves. They had to change, you know, make changes to their caseload or the hours that they were available to work, you know, just dealing with the downflow of changing availability of childcare and school schedules. And is school going to be hybrid or is it going to be in, or it's going to be at home? And, you know, all of that impacts the availability of the work. So what, what we try to do more than anything else is make it very easy to, come back, you know, on your terms whenever you're ready and remove that sort of stigma that has been out there for a long time that, you know, a lot of women get really nervous to leave, even if things have gotten to a point where it's not sustainable. You know, it's what will people think if I walk away or, you know, if I walk away now, I'll lose all of the, you know, credibility that I've built up. So we're trying to take that stress out of it and just say, we understand that, things change, schedules change. And when you're ready, we've got lots of opportunity. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm so curious to know what, what are some common things that you, that you hear from maybe HR teams out there that you wish that they would do differently? You know, maybe some advice you would give HR teams out there in terms of how they can reduce that stigma for, for folks that are returning back because they feel like they're, professional career got sidelined for a while or whatever the reason was that they're feeling that kind of angst, what would you suggest that they can do to help make that less stressful for for folks coming back? I think HR departments often treat changes in work or gaps in work as a signal of a lack of commitment to work, which is, you know, probably the biggest mistake. I mean, there could be a lot of reasons that, you know, someone makes that decision to take a break or have a gap in their time at work. I think we need to need to give credit that, you know, whenever a woman expresses interest in a job, especially when that's coming back to the workforce, that she's thought it through and she's applying for a job because she wants to work and is ready to work. And I think, you know, we we sort of ask questions or speculate rather than asking directly. And so I always encourage more, you know, if you have a question about a gap, ask why did you stop working then? Why are you ready to come back now? But don't don't assume that it says something about you know her her dedication as a worker. There's a lot of assumptions that are made or imputed behind the scenes. I mean, the the, the book goes through you know a bunch of different examples of that. You know how how do people react or change their viewpoint of a woman's ambition after she gets engaged? Is is you know one topic that we go through in the in the book? And you know how do people react to name changes once she gets married? There's so many examples. I, I promise I won't go through all of them here live. But the biggest piece of advice that I give to managers, leaders, HR departments is don't don't assume. Give her credit that you know. If you assume anything, assume that she has ambition to work and desire to work. That's really concrete advice. I appreciate that. The other audience that I'm keeping in mind is that we have a lot of students that are early on in their healthcare careers and young professionals that are just starting out. And so, for those folks, what advice would you give in terms of 
as they emerge into the marketplace and think about all their options that are out in front of them. Uh, you alluded to the fact that, you know, working from home is becoming increasingly attractive to a lot of folks. What are other things that they ought to be thinking about as they start their their journey in, in clinical medicine? I think there are so many more options for ways to work that it's a it's a really great time to be starting out in your career because I think you know you can you can ask yourself what do I really love doing and then figure out which of the job options allows you to do that more often than anything else and that's part of why telehealth opportunities you know online teaching teletherapy all of these areas is part of it, I think why they become appealing because there's there's more actual concentrated patient time, which tends to be the, the thing that gets people excited and is, is what they love to do. You know, whether or not the online modality or in-room modality is what gives you energy, I think there's more opportunity right out of the gate to decide that for yourself and, and to try it out. The, the other piece of advice I always give everyone is, you know, your first job doesn't have to be where you you know, spend decades of your career either. So there's always value in trying out something and getting experience. I think you are in a much better position to appreciate your job once you've had a variety of a few different environments to compare it against. That's awesome advice. And and it's an interesting point. I had not really thought about the fact that you actually may spend more time doing clinical work because you're not commuting, not getting ready and doing paperwork and all that. You know, you're literally just kind of going from... yeah you know, family to family. Yeah. Listen, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I can't believe that we're done already. That flew by. It was a really interesting conversation. Awesome. Well, I'm Risha Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>